Welcome back to another episode driven by cause. This episode is brought to you by Ariva and Microsoft, the thought leaders behind the industry's only completely integrated and fully automated cloud-based software for digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software. I'm joined by my awesome co-host, Jay Fisk. How are you today, Jay? I am, uh, as always, excited to meet our guest and today, guests plural. Well, you're right. I am excited too, Jay. Today it is going to be a great episode because we have two guests today. They are the co-authors of the best-selling Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving, which was named winner of the AFP Skystone Partners Prize for Research on Fundraising and Philanthropy. Today, Michael is part of the Johnson Center serving as the Frey Foundation Chair for Family Philanthropy, the world's first endowed chair for family philanthropy, and Shauna serves as the founder and vice president of 2164, a nonprofit practice serving next-gen and multi-generational philanthropic families. Shauna has also been named to the New York Business Journal's Women of Influence list. Between the two of them, they have written numerous publications, such as the, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Forbes, Chronicle of Philanthropy, Stanford Social Innovation Review, and the Huffington Post, just to name a few. Please join me in welcoming Shauna Goldsecker and Michael Moody. It's great thanks to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're so happy you both could be here with us today. Can you share with our listeners some information about yourselves? Tell us how you both got started in the nonprofit industry. Go ahead, John. Um, so thanks for having us today. It's great to be here with you both and uh, always fun to get to share the stage with my co-author and Michael. Um, I come to this work wearing two hats, a personal one and a professional one. So. My grandpa, along with his brother, immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s, and my grandpa opened a little grocery store down by the wharf in Baltimore, Maryland, where I'm from, and his brother started to pull some money together and buy row houses. If you've ever taken the train, Hamtrak train down the Northeast Corridor, you've probably seen those outside of the window of the train. Um, the real estate business did a little bit better, and everyone in the family moved in that direction, including my father. And... When his uncle, my great uncle passed away, he hadn't married, he didn't have children of his own. And my father discovered when the will was read, which is not how we recommend successful <laughs> succession conversations going, of course, but um, he discovered he was to set up a charitable foundation in his uncle's honor with his uncle's estate. And so that was really the genesis story of philanthropy in our family. And this happened the year before I was born. So I was really raised as my dad was learning himself how to steward a foundation and to do that responsibly and make an impact in the community in which we live. So um, yeah. I learned a lot of important lessons along the way. I'm happy to share some of them as we speak. Um, but along the way, I also met a lot of other next gen who were trying to earn the right to that legacy and learn their role in philanthropy. And hence my career in family philanthropy began. Um, so I uh, grew up um, mostly uh, with a single mother and, and, and uh, you know, faced, um, uh, was, was very familiar with hardship, both for our family, but especially for other members of my 
immediate family and uh, and 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 knew what it was. A way I've heard it described recently is everybody in the family knew when payday was. Um, and that's sort of the mentality. And so, uh, so I, when I went to college, uh, which was not, a, not necessarily a given, uh, growing up when I went to college, I, um, uh, really wanted to use that experience to then go out and change the world. Right. So there's late eighties and I feel like I was going to, you know, work in nonprofits and change the world in some way. Uh, but I didn't really know what that was going to be like. And, uh, I was lucky enough to have gone to, um, and I got really involved in that in college. Um, and so I was set up for doing that. And I was lucky enough to go to a university, Indiana University, um, that had recently just set up a new uh, center on philanthropy uh, in uh, started in 88. And, but I graduated in 89. Um, and uh, and so it eventually became the world, the world class institute. Uh, for the study and teaching of philanthropy that is there now the, the, as a Lilly Family School. Um, and I was one of the very first employees of that uh, as a recent college graduate. Um, and that's really what set me on the path to what I do now, which is trying to help uh, improve the understanding and practice of philanthropy, speaking broadly, writ large philanthropy um, in all of its different forms. Um, and I had a mentor who was the, the sort of founding director of that named Robert Payton, um, who really helped me see that my role could be in in looking at the philanthropy as a as a as it plays a role in all in our society, um, and helping people understand that through both research and other things I do to bridge research and practice. So, that's wow. you know essentially the mission that he we, we decided on for me when I was twenty one is still my mission today at fifty five. So, wow. well, we are we're thrilled to have you both on our podcast today, and thank you both for taking the time to to join us. And the two of you are the are the authors. Of the groundbreaking book "Generational Generation Impact: How Next Gen Donors Are Revolutionizing Giving," it offers a, a rare profile of the face of uh, the new face of uh, philanthropy, the Gen X and millennial millennial philanthropists. A little hard for me to say, but I know you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so, what can you tell us about how they're revolutionizing uh, philanthropy and and how they're changing the philanthropic uh, landscape? So. Michael was just talking about his role as the Fry Chair of Family Philanthropy. And as he was coming into that role, he and I connected at a Council and Foundations conference actually in Philadelphia. And we were starting to talk about the groundbreaking research that he would have the opportunity to do in that role. And I was about 10 years into my career at 2164. 21, you come of age, 64, you typically start to think about your legacy in this country. And so I was doing all this next generation work and starting to consult with the families of young people because they too wanted to learn how to best engage their next gen in philanthropy. And so we put our heads together and we said, look, we don't, we're seeing this anecdotally in the field. We're seeing all these major institutions hearing from their members that concern about the next gen carrying on the significance of philanthropy is number one in their member surveys. And so how can we move past the anecdotal experience we have and do some solid research? And so uh, with Michael's university research base, we were able to field a national survey and do in-depth interviews and have done additional surveys over the years, but really come to understand how those Gen X and millennial donors approach giving. Um, and so, you know, one, we realized that they have the potential to have an outsized impact on philanthropy, uh, first, because of the resources that they have at their disposal, you know, $59 trillion is in process of being transferred to those post baby boom generations. 
between now and 2061, I think is the the estimate and about half of that to go philanthropically in bequests or during lifetime giving, according to Boston College. And we know that young people are earning great amounts of wealth, whether on Wall Street or in the gold rush of Silicon Valley, you know, and at earlier stages than ever before. And then we realize that it's not just about the numbers, it's about the fact that people are living longer and not wanting to wait to you know, kind of traditionally retire into philanthropic leisure where, you know, we used to hear people would sort of be in their accumulation stage. And then when they had late adulthood retirement could be philanthropic. And instead, younger generations were saying, hang on, why wait? We have resources. There are great needs in the world to be addressed. It's imperative that we get involved now. And I guess lastly, I would say, Michael, and then I would turn it over to you for more of our findings. But they really looked at the best solutions that could address problems in the world, be it in the for-profit and nonprofit sector. And so started to say, how can we revolutionize philanthropy in a way that's going to enable us to make social change that's needed? Okay. We had great opportunity to capture that and to share that in first person stories in a way that hadn't been done in the field before. And mm -hmm. hopefully it's benefited all kinds of advisors, nonprofit professionals, and next-gen donors and their families as well. So it's been a, a great opportunity for us. I'm feeling very, I feel very grateful for the opportunity we've had to do this research and work over the years. Can you share what you believe is the most important uh, you know, aspect, I guess, of uh, for the for the next generation of donors in deciding when you know what is going to make them decide. Uh, how to make their how to make a major gift? What, what what's what's playing in their brain? Yeah, well, I would say uh, you know the simple answer. It's in the title of our book is one word: impact. Exactly. Uh, they are, uh, and we say it in the book. They are obsessed with impact, and and it's not as though previous generations didn't care about impact. It's that this generation really wants um, to be the generation that makes the biggest impact, that really moves the needle on those issues that they've seen in some cases their parents and grandparents working on or other older generations of donors and especially major donors trying to do um, great things about public education or you know healthcare or the environment or whatever and this generation says we, we we're proud of that we think that was a good uh, good effort but we want to do it in a way that really changes things um, and we want to see that change, that impact. We want to see how the the, the difference that our investments and uh, of of a range of our assets, not just our treasure, but our time, our talent, and we added in the book a fourth T of ties, uh, all of the assets that we have to give. They want to see how those make a difference. So they, you know, they want to give to many similar causes as other major givers. But what really matters for them when they give is um, finding those places where their gift is going to really make an impact. Um, and uh, so they, so the old standard, you know, uh, we were going to entice donors by putting up a big thermometer on the lawn uh, at, for our fundraising campaign. And then the next line on the thermometer is when you do a big gift. They don't want to be the next line on the thermometer. They want to know what is reaching that top of that thermometer going to do for the kids in my community or for cleaning the air uh, or climate change or whatever it is. Um, and so that's what they, that's what they think about the most. And then you know, a lot of the other findings in the book are really about how they want to go about doing that. What is what do they think about as good philanthropy from their perspective? And it and it, it definitely involves giving all of their uh, mm -hmm. their assets, you know, and, and being very hands on, giving their time and their talent, um, as well as working with peers. It certainly involves people, you know, trying to do innovation, trying to take risks. 
you know, we had somebody in the book, uh, Daniel Laurie, who who uh, started the Tipping Point community in the Bay Area, uh, who said, you can't, we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results. So they want to try new things and they're willing to try whatever, uh, if it's potentially going to lead to that one thing they want, which is ultimately impact. So there's a, there's a lot of, that has a lot of implications for the field. Um, but we heard very clear from them that, um, that, that they want to give in new ways and they want to do so because they think it could lead to greater impact. I'm, what I'm hearing is they want to move a bigger needle. They want to, they, 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 they want to see a bigger result uh, rather than a series of smaller local results. And to, to, you know, destroy the metaphor even further, they want to grab the needle themselves and help move it, right? Yeah, Not just yeah. give the money to other people and they have those people move. They want to be there when the needle moves and yeah, give advice on where the needle's going to go. Love it. Love it. Yeah, Michael, that, that that really is, the focus is really great. And now millenniums and Gen Xs and other generations are due to inherit some $59 trillion by 2061. And it isn't anticipated that nearly half will go to charitable causes. However, they demand more engagement from organizations, like you were saying. What are some of the unique communications and engagement strategies that nonprofits can use to reach these new generations? So one finding of our research was that NextGen said, you know, I may be approached to do a million things, come to a lot of events, join committees, but really I want to go all in on a couple of things and apply my time, talent, treasure. And we added a fourth T to that age-old maxim, ties, to a couple of organizations or causes that I care most about. So we often hear from nonprofits, you know, I reached out to them, I never heard from them. Um, and we hear, look, we're approached for a lot of things at the same time, we're in a developmental stage of our lives where we're building our careers and our families. So we have a lot of competing demands. It doesn't mean I'm not interested. It just means I'm really gonna prioritize a few things so I could go more deeply. And as Michael said, affect change with those organizations to really partner with them. So. You know, in some ways, I guess the first suggestion to nonprofits is just to appreciate the um, conditions, the perspective, the generational personality that they're approaching and not to assume when they don't hear that they're not interested, but to understand they have a lot going on in their lives. Um, two, we heard a next-gen donor whom we interviewed, Emily Davis, said to us, don't think about them as an ATM. <laughs> you know, you have to remember they're humans, they're people with values and interests of their own. So, you know, rather than just soliciting them, like try to get to know them, build a relationship, um, think about it as courting where that you might have, you know, a long-term relationship. These are young people. The upside of that is that they could be your donors for a very long time if you develop a meaningful partnership. And I say partnership in particular because we really saw that NextGen want to be hands-on. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, you need to uh, make them the leader of your organization as a, as a young donor, but, you know, they're willing to give of their time. They're willing to give of their talent. We heard a lot of NextGen say, um, I have skills. Like one woman, I'll never forget, said, "If you no nonprofit makes me pick the napkin colors at the gala again, yeah. I'll scream." Right, and it was usually women who were asked to do that. And she said, "I'm an attorney," and another said, "I'm in finance," another said, "I'm a social worker." Like, how can I really use my skills to meet the needs that the nonprofit may have? Um, and maybe I'll let Michael talk more about treasure and ties. But I think getting to know the people and not just seeing them as like one of the many millennium millennials that you might cultivate 
um, makes them feel like they're individuals in their own right and not just the child of or the the ATM, as Emily puts it, um, to be the next donor in your organization, but to be a partner over time. Thanks. And I, I guess I would just add that, that you know, they, there is this assumption that's in the field that if you want to reach millennials or now Gen Zers, that you just, you have to use social media and that's how they want to be involved. Um, and that you need to retool your communication strategies for your fundraising, even for major donor fundraising to be more social media focused. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, yes, having robust social media is going to be good for them, but um, but you know, especially when they're when they're going to make bigger commitments and they want to think about this long-term partnership that we were just Shauna was just talking about, the you know they want to um, to be hands-on. They want to be there having meetings with the program staff and the executive director of the organization about how are we going to meet these result benchmarks we talked about, or well, we maybe let's you know put me you know, put me in charge of a task force to go out and figure out some new program idea that you may need to reach a new population, uh, and so. So, you know, I think the fundraising strategies and the communication strategies and engagements are all about finding ways to make them feel deeply engaged, as we said, I'll go all in with the organization. Um, and that, that may feel a little uncomfortable, uh, you know, giving you giving some control over certain things over to to over to donors. Um, but uh, but that's that's what's going to build that relationship that they want to have that then could be again, they're going to have more treasure to give than any other generation. Uh, in in the past, and so if they become big donors to your organization that feel really connected, they're going to be the biggest donors you ever had. Yeah. So, Michael, you work with the Johnson Center uh, at the Fry Foundation as Fry Foundation uh, Chair for Family Philanthropy, and this is the world um, this is the world's first uh, endowed chair for family philanthropy. And uh, for our listeners who may not know, can you elaborate on what is a family what is family philanthropy? Furthermore. Um, why is it important for nonprofit organizations today? Can you help us out there a little bit? Yeah. So the the, the challenge, of course, is that there is no uh, legal or shared definition of what family philanthropy is. There's not even you know many people don't realize that that you know we hear about family foundations, which are very prominent, uh, but there's no actual legal. That's not a legal category. Uh, there you know there's no hard and fast rule even within the pe- the field and the people who work in the field. Uh, uh, on what exactly defines a f- the line between whether you're a family foundation or not a family foundation. Um, so I tend to take a very broad uh, view of it. And that is that family, I also want to think about family philanthropy as not just family foundations, but other uh, ways of giving uh, by families and through families that um, that are that are doing good, that aren't just about people who have the resources to create a foundation. So family philanthropy is really about a sort of a collective act of giving together and in the name of your family. Um, and, and so it it can go all the way from, you know, the Gates Foundation is a family foundation. We, you know, let's not forget, it's not just family foundations. Most of them are small. The vast majority are small, um, but they're the biggest one ever is a family foundation. And uh, or the multi-generational giving families like the Rockefellers, um, that's family philanthropy for sure. But it also means, you know, volunteering uh, with your spouse and your kids for their soccer tournament or uh, or making a choice in the holiday time about where you want to do some small checkbook giving at the end of the year for your family. And you do that around the kitchen table um, and everything in between. So it's it's an it's an act of families working together in some way. And that can be giving money that can be serving, volunteering together um, uh, to, to in ways that fit with or or try to advance the family's values. Um, that in many cases sort of becomes and, and extends a family legacy. 
Um, those are all important elements of family philanthropy, but uh, I tend to take a very broad view of it. And the reason it's important is because the vast majority of philanthropy is is family philanthropy. People, people you know, who follow the statistics, right, uh, will know that uh, when you actually look at the amount of giving that's done every year, um, the vast majority of that comes from individuals uh, or through bequests uh, and other ways in which you're, you're, it's not foundations or corporations, even though they get most of the news. Um, and sure, of course, some of those foundations are family foundations also. Um, but there's just lots and lots of small uh, family-based acts of charitable giving and philanthropic giving. And they are very often, for most nonprofits, the vast majority of all your annual donors. Those are family philanthropists. Um, and so family philanthropists matter an organization that, that works in this field. Well, thank, thank you for that. After decades of experience in this industry, what challenges or changes do you see facing nonprofits down the road? I'll say a couple, and then I see if Sharna has some. But uh, you know, the 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 biggest one I think is was was relevant from our book is uh, what we've talked about it a little bit today, and that is just how much. Uh, adaptation needs to happen in the nonprofit and fundraising space to meet the 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 great potential and opportunity of the next generation donors. Uh, you know, they really want to engage in different ways, as we've talked about, and and that's going to require uh, fundraisers and nonprofits to change how they think about major donor fundraising and engagement and cultivation. Uh, you know, you the you the the, the old ways won't really work as well with this next generation uh and they're gonna they're gonna ask more of your time um they are they are a bit more work uh but again the payoff is that they could be way you know the biggest donors you've ever had um so that that really that sort of retooling of the the practice and techniques of fundraising in order to meet the next generation of donors i think is is a huge challenge for the field of nonprofits. And the other one I'll mention is that um, we know from not just surveys and research like we did on major donors in the next generation, but also um, uh, across the next generations, and we see it already merging with Gen Z, um, there is this, this sense that if you ask a young person how they want to do good in the world, how do they want to live their values for social change? Um, the idea of giving a, a, a amount of money to a traditional 501c3 charity is not at the top of the list, as it might have been for previous generations. Um, you know, up there, more at the top of the list are things like taking a job and working in a profession that you know has a double or triple bottom line, um, being a socially conscious consumer, um, uh, you know, and, and being, being engaged in political movements or organizing for for um, for social change activities or social justice movements. You know, so a lot of things um, that they see as doing good. And this is, again, when I say they, a whole range of the next generation, especially um, don't fit our traditional categories uh, or the way we often think about 501c3 fundraisers. Um, and so those who are in those roles in nonprofits um, who are trying to get those next, those very next gen folks to to give to their organization have to think about how they can kind of innovate and 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 uh, be more creative in, in in how they approach them and and how they partner with others in the in the community doing other things um, so that they can appeal to that. But I don't think those trends are going away, and it's a big challenge for nonprofits. We've already seen it in terms of the decline in in, in what we think of as ordinary. Uh, middle-class household giving is going down. Um, and I think that's part of it. It's not that people are apathetic or don't want to contribute to charity. It's that they've got all sorts of other outlets for doing good in the world. And that's a big challenge for the nonprofit world overall. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. 
Shana, as the founder and vice president of 2164, can you share with our listeners why you founded this organization and what you hope to achieve for your clients? So um, thinking back, we're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary next year, and um, it's amazing to appreciate the passage of time, but I had the good fortune of working for a philanthropic family, the uh, the Bronfmans, and specifically Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies, and they were interested in supporting NextGen around the globe on a number of issues, including education and heritage and crossing lines of difference. And they said, you know, we have a lot of peers who are supporting these next gen initiatives. What about the next gen of donors? Because as the needs evolve, you also need peers of theirs who will agree to fund the evolving needs, right? My generation sees things one way. I know from my own children, they see the world differently. And you know, the next generation will need its philanthropist to respond to the changing needs too. And so it was with that motivation in mind that they in, had an they had an operating foundation, which is a, a little bit of a different category than most. So there are private foundations that give gifts to nonprofits, and there are operating foundations that, in addition to making grants, can also fund their own programs. And so I was uh, encouraged to start twenty one sixty four as an operating project of the foundation to be able to support the growth of next generation donors and did a lot of education in that space. You know, imagine young people saying, I'm in my twenties, I'm trying to figure out what to major in in college and what my career will be and um, what what my partnership and if I will have children and you know, where I'll live in the world. And, and in the middle of all that parents calling and saying, hey, by the way, I want you to join the board of our, you know, half a million dollar, half a billion dollar foundation come home for a family meeting, you know? So we were just, we were trying to really address people who, um, I don't know if that evokes empathy and a lot of people most would say like, oh, I'm sorry, you have that challenge. But, you know, there are people who are stepping into this opportunity and responsibility of stewardship of dollars that they didn't earn, that they're trying to figure out who they are in the world. And at the same time, figure out their philanthropic identity and role in stewardship. And that's a complicated challenge if you have the humility to want to do it well. And we met a lot of really earnest next gen who said, I need the education, I need the coaching, I need the tools. Um, and so that was the motivation behind building out 2164. And pretty quickly, families would call and say, we're trying to add our next gen to the board, come help us do this well. And then professional advisors um, started to say, can you train us and coach us in your methodology and tools? And we were excited to do that. So um, we incubated out of the Rumpfman Philanthropies as it spent down and are an independent consulting practice and in a way still maintain our mission of next generation engagement in philanthropy and then multi-generational advising and professional training. And I think maybe the last thing I would add, if I could, is just um, as Michael said, and as you intimated in your questions, the field evolves, you know, so one of the things we've done in the last few years is to notice that the professional advisor community we're training um, are most mostly have identified as white individuals. And what could we do to take responsibility as one of the largest professional development trainers in the field to say, how do we bring in people of color to be philanthropic advisors? And so we started with the funding of CERDNA and Joyce and Irving Goldman Family Foundation and others to start certified advisors of color training and mentorship programs. So 
I've been really excited to work with new philanthropic advisors in the space and see that come to fruition. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you both, uh, amazing background and we've talked a lot about, about your work. Uh, and I don't know which one of the two of you, uh, Sharna or, or Michael want to go first on this, but, uh, we'd be curious to know what is something about the two of you separately that we, that might surprise our audience? What, what, you know, what in your personal lives might we be curious to find out? You first. <laughs> I lose. Okay. Uh, so um, mine's going to be very short uh, and you have, and it requires a cultural reference, which is uh, a moment in the first matrix film uh, when Neo uh, is getting downloaded uh, into his brain, uh, and he all of a sudden realizes, "I know kung fu." Uh, <laughs> so that's what you would know about. I know kung fu. Uh, only mine was not through a brain download; it was many years of practice. Gotcha. How did that? Now, see, people would not have guessed that about you. <laughs> what about you? I was going to go a totally different direction, and now I'm feeling like I'm too serious. So, um, <laughs> um. You know, I was going to say most people think like with all the work on family dynamics and board governance that I do, I must have like a million siblings running around my house that I've learned to negotiate with. I'm actually an only child. So that is what most people don't know. Yeah. And I just am really good sitting with silence and helping to yeah. be comfortable with other people's dynamics as they help if I try to help them sort through them. So those are both great and i'm an only child those are our revelations today thanks for thanks for sharing that that personal insight to the two of you thank you and uh, michael i'll stay away from you and i don't get on your wrong wrong side of you i don't want to experience any of your kung fu from the wrong from the wrong side of the the table <laughs> one of the principles though is that uh kung fu is there so that you never have to use it i love it <laughs> exactly of you we well, always uh, like to finish our show by asking each of you one question. What is something that we didn't ask you that you wish we had? You know, there's a whole section of the book and a whole section of what we've talked about that I think really is relevant, especially for nonprofits and fundraisers, which is, um, uh, you know, how the next generation thinks about the previous generations and what to do if you're a fundraiser, thinking about this new world that you're coming into, this big challenge we've been talking about, um, when most of your donors, especially your biggest donors, are going to continue for a little while to be, you know, baby boomers and maybe older Gen Xers. Um, and, uh, and you know, I think a lot of people miss, uh, mistake this the, the next generation for wanting to leave the old generation behind and put their, new, their own uh, stamp on things and take the baton and, and run with the, the you know, the, 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 the roles in the field. Uh, the leadership in the field, the major gift uh, activity in the field, and and not do that with older generations. Like they've had their time and we want to move on. And that's not what we found the next generation wants to do. They're very um, eager to be engaged in multi-generational giving. They're very eager to learn, learn from older generations, um, as long as they are taken seriously also as the next generation that has that has, you know, expertise, that has energy. Uh, and, uh, and so the, I think that, you know, it, it may, that is a, that is in some ways positive news for the nonprofits and fundraisers is that it's not an either or choice that you have to either spend time working with your older donors or start retooling for the new donors. Uh, you know, there's a way of doing both. Uh, and in fact, uh, both generations want to do both. The older generation wants to be involved with the next generation and vice versa. So I think that's a, that's an element of this we haven't really talked about, but it's super important. 
for me, maybe the question is, what do I do after I listen to this podcast? You know, what's my own action to take? And so, you know, I think about when my Gen Z children come home from school and agilely, you know, manage their Google classrooms and their video games and all the technology that makes me feel very old. Um, I get a little intimidated. And so I can imagine that fundraisers and nonprofit professionals might feel intimidated to try to figure out how to navigate relationship building with younger generations. And so maybe my offering would be, you know, write down like a handful, even if they're your own nieces and nephews or kids who live in the neighborhood or, you know, a close friend's children and like start to practice and just flex the muscle of having coffee with or sip, spilling tea as the Gen Z like to say with the younger generations to practice what that relationship development and dialogue is about. And I think it will kind of demystify the, you know, the experience of it and realize that they're just people too. You know, they want to have conversations about values and what's keeping them up at night and how they too can have a meaningful purpose-driven life just like you do, I'm sure. So that would be my suggestion. Just go start now and enjoy those conversations. You know, both of you Thanks. just opened the door to technology there. And I just want to pipe in real real quick. One of the things I see a lot with uh, with auction committees is the concern over trying to integrate technology into their galas because they they are dealing with the baby boomers or and so forth. And they're thinking, oh no, we, we couldn't possibly go to mobile bidding and, and have people bid on a cell phone because a lot of our supporters are older, you know, and they just don't, they don't, they don't get that. And you know, the younger people would totally gravitate to that and it wouldn't be a problem, but we have to be well, you know, we have to be fair to and and recognize our older uh attendees at our event. And I I will just ask them, I'll say, well, how do you think those baby boomers communicate with their grandkids. Mm -hmm. You know, well, they right. send they send text back and forth to their grandkids. They're not going to forget how to use their cell phone just because they attended your gala. You know, so it, it, there is that that layering. You got to be aware of that layering, but there's probably more in common than I think we probably give uh, the different layers of generations credit for. So I think that's totally right, Jay. And you know, to echo something that Michael was saying too. It, it could be in parallel. So I recently attended an event where they both had the analog version of please, you know, write your check and put it in the bucket in the middle of the table. And they had on the screen the text number where to where you could text your gift, you know, right. and that you had both options. And as people live longer and we have multiple generations in the same space at the same time. I think you're right. We, we are already confronting that in our families and in our lives. And so too, in the nonprofit world. And there's also an opportunity for, for multi, you know, intergenerational uh, sort of partnerships around giving. I mean, that, you know, younger generations would love if they could be the person actually making the donation using the technology that grandma and grandpa are going to pay for uh, and that they want to, that they want to donate and, you know, and showing them how to do that. I mean, that's, that kind of tech, it gets old all the time. If you're constantly asked to fix your, uh, your, you know, your grandma or your mother's uh, uh, printer every time you come by, but, uh, but it is a really, you know, it's a great connector uh, between generations or potentially a great connector between generations. And if your fundraising event can allow them to have that connection, that's another great value add you bring to the family. Yeah. And by the way, Michael, that happens with my kids and my mom every single Sunday. So with that, I, Michael and Shauna, this was great. And we'll be right back after this.
We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose. Software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our clients' success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Welcome back, everyone. All right, we're going into our next segment, Ask the Maestro. Jay, what question do you have from our audience today? Well, David, we have an interesting question today. The first one comes from uh, from uh, Jenny. Uh, she said she'd uh, I'd be interested in hearing from Michael and Sharna thoughts on this. This is something normally we would answer, but I think we want you to answer this instead. And that's we're seeing that the average age of donors for our organization is boomers, followed by Gen X, but millennials and Gen Zs are philanthropic in giving, uh, but in different ways. What do you think there is, why do you think there's such a difference between these two groups? So who wants to tackle that? I will say that, um, that you know, if, if we know, uh, and my short version would be just wait. Uh, the, you know, it won't be very long before your biggest donors are not just Gen Xers, but millennials. Um, because we know that the resources are going to be there. Uh, we've, we know that we know that this wealth transfer is happening. It's, it's historic amounts of money that are being passed on both in at, at the end of life for older generations and during their lifetimes. Um, and the beneficiaries of that are Gen Xers and millennials and now Gen Z. Uh, and so uh, there is going to be a lot more significant giving by those generations going forward. Um, but again, they are that doesn't mean it's going to look in the same way. And so I think some of the patterns that she might be seeing with younger generations giving are going to continue even when they have more money to give. Um, and, and I think that that's that's what we can all expect uh, is that they're going to be giving in different ways, but they're also but they're going to become the biggest donors. We're already seeing this with Gen, some of the older Gen Xer donors are becoming the biggest donors of some organizations. Um, and so I think uh, it's uh, it's it's happening more rapidly than many people realize. Thanks for the question, Jenny. I think you probably articulated one that many nonprofit professionals are feeling. Um, so I have two answers for you, right? One is from the literature. Sociologists like Neil Howe is writing about multiple generations having different events and conditions that inform them as they were growing up. And so the lens that they have on the nonprofit sector is informed by whether they, you know, lived through different social, economic, political life events that change how they see the world, right? And how they experience things. So therefore, that's kind of the rationale, I think, behind why your boomers uh, approach giving maybe by causes, because perhaps they grew up in a time where civil rights and women's rights and 
war or anti-war, right? We're kind of coming to the fore. And so baby boomers often lead with, these are the causes that I care about, right? Whereas um, Gen Xers, and I'm proud to be one, um, grew up during Watergate and Iran-Contra and the downsizing of corporations our parents worked decades for and the free love of Woodstock looked like the AIDS epidemic to our generation and the war on drugs added crack to the list. Like we're totally cynical about everything. And so bring lots of skepticism to our nonprofits, um, but we come by it naturally. So I hope you have some empathy for us. And I guess what I wanna say is to that end, like how do you then apply that in practice? I just recently spoke at a university to board of governors asking the same questions you are. And right before I spoke on a panel with a Gen Xer and a millennial, the head of the fundraising committee was talking about the golf fundraiser that they were having um, not far from where you live, David. And the millennial on the panel behind, behind me got up and he said, I'm a graduate of your university. I'm a $100,000 giver. I'm never coming to that golf event. <laughs> it is not, it's not for my generation. If you want to walk me around campus, show me what your needs are. I'm an entrepreneur. I'll be glad to see where your gaps are and to fund the next iteration of your X program, I'm ready but I don't need to be on the on the golf course with you. I can do that with my friends. So it was just like a beautiful anecdote to illustrate the generational differences that we're talking about today. So I think the solution to that is ask them, ask them how they want to be engaged and ask them how they want to be involved. And they'll tell you whether you wanna hear it or not, they, they'll bring you ideas of how they can best play a role in your nonprofit. I wanna make a quick comment about the, about the uh... The graduate who who said I'm a hundred thousand dollar donor. I don't want it. I don't need to attend your golf tournament. Um, I have to make a comment about that. That person is a great supporter, but they're they're not seeing the bigger vision. The reason for the golf tournament is not to get that hundred thousand dollars. It's to get what I call OPM, other people's money. We want that hundred thousand dollar giver to to buy a buy a foursome. And and bring three other people that can equally give money. He's gonna we're gonna get his money anyway. But no, the reason we want you to attend the golf tournament is not to get the money you're gonna give us anyway. We want you to attend the golf tournament to help us spread, you know, spread the ask. We want to we want to learn new people. We want to bring more people in to understand why we need the money. And that's what we're asking you to do is to host a foursome or be a sponsor or something like that. That's why we need you at the golf tournament. That would have been my answer anyway. I think it's a smart answer. And I think, you know, we didn't talk about the ties part of our four T's. Like, they're, too, yeah. they're, they're super networked and they're super willing to look horizontally to their peers to bring them around the table. I just think you have to offer them something that they want to do in the first place and then they'll bring it to their peers. And I just, I don't know if the golf course is, is the hook for everyone. I think it's for some, you know. Yeah. So the, the bringing in other people is really attractive to them, especially they can, you know, they, if they can, if they're really deeply engaged with the organization, it's the, it's the fact of bringing them in only for money that I think is less attractive. And, you know, it, it's more, let me let, you know, yes, I can, we can do a foursome, but what we'd like to do is I get three of my friends or 10 of my friends and we tour campus together and we talk about stuff and then we decide, okay, you have this gap, you need a new engineering program for, uh, for something. And, and I've got people who I know how to do that. And let's, let's, you know, we'll give the money will help lead the task force. And, you know, that's what they want to do. Got so they're, they're really into getting other people involved in the causes that they care about. 
but they want to do it around those those their talents and their you know not just around money. So they the can see it. Yeah. And so they can see it, you know. So my gift will go to that building and yours will go to this program and here's where my, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, we usually end up answering the ask the maestro questions and I am so glad this time around we had you answer those because you gave a much better answer than I think David and I would have. So they were great answers. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for those of you watching, uh, tune in uh, Driven by Cause next episode we'll have another opportunity for you to uh, ask ask the maestro and have it answered right right here right David yeah well thanks Jay Michael and Shauna it was a pleasure having you both with us today it was such a treat thank you so much for all your insight and advice to all of our listeners our pleasure thank you yeah thanks for having us no absolutely and while we're at it um, make sure you go ahead and hit the subscribe button do not miss out on any any of our driven by causes I also want to give a Special thank you to our amazing sponsors, Ariba and Microsoft, for their support and allowing us to be here with you today. Thank you all for a fantastic uh, session, and, uh, and we really appreciate all the listeners, and we'll hope you join us next time on Driven by Cause. Make it a great day.